0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it, it is good to be together again. Uh, hey, let me just comment before we jump into uh, our study again of Mark. Uh, just a comment on the troubling times uh, that certainly our nation is seeing. Uh, and you know, the the word that that just comes to mind as I consider these things, pray about these things. Uh, maybe a couple different words, but one of the words is just certainly the word depravity, uh, and we are seeing it in every form from so many people from so many different angles. That it is working itself out whether it's the injustice of a particular police officer or a group of police officers or it's the response of folks that are out in the street um, beating people uh, with two by fours and destroying things we are living in troubling times and this is the whole this summarizes everything that we're getting to in our particular study today and that we have been building to this is the reason why Jesus Christ went to the cross There's this idea, this concept out there that man is basically good, that is not true. And the reality is is that man needs a savior and then when sin is given an opportunity to reign, it will indeed do that and we're seeing that and it's troubling times and so we pray for our nation. The other word that comes to mind when I think about what we're seeing is the word hope because Jesus Christ can enter into the heart of any man and any woman and change them eternally. And I believe that Jesus Christ and the, Cro- the church of Jesus Christ can shine brightly in the midst of all that we're seeing and all that we're experiencing in our day. And that's my prayer. That's what I've been praying would indeed happen, and that many would turn to Jesus Christ as a result of the troubling times that we are experiencing. And so before I jump into Mark chapter 14 once more, let me just pray for our nation. Father, so many things are going on uh, in our world. Um, Lord, we we almost have forgotten about the COVID pandemic and the impact uh, that it has had on our world and on our economy and on the lives of so many who lost loved ones and the 100,000 or so that we lost in our nation alone. And we know that every one of those lives impacts three people, five people, 25 people that loved them and cared for them and we'll never, uh, never get them back. And Father, we see, uh, Lord, how injustice once more has sort of reared itself in our nation. And Lord, we see the response that it has caused, uh, both positive and, and sadly so destructively negative. And we're seeing the impact of sin in our society. And Lord, we need your help. We need you to intervene. We need you to touch. We need you to transform Lord, we need you to bring good from evil. And so, Father, that is our prayer. It has been the prayer of so many of your children. You no doubt know that. And so, Lord, we pray for revival to come to our land. We pray for a great awakening. We pray for an opening of the hearts of those that are presently lost, that they will see the end of themselves, And ultimately, the end of all things, and they would return or they would come to you, perhaps, for the first time, crying out to you, Lord, uh, to save them from their sins and the consequences of their sins. And so, Lord, pour forth your spirit. And I pray for each one of us that are watching, listening, each one of us that names the name of Christ, Lord, that we would speak boldly in these times the only hope of man, Jesus Christ, and we'd proclaim your name, and many would be drawn to you, many would come to you, many would be saved. Bless our time now as we continue to move forward in our study of the Gospel of Mark, as we continue to move closer and closer to the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, open up our eyes to understand, open up our hearts to receive. May this time be a fruitful time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I know some of you are gathering in backyards watching this today. Uh, You must be delighted uh, to be in the presence of a few other people outside of perhaps your immediate family. Some of you are probably very excited uh, to be uh, with some others, and so that's great. Pretty soon we're gonna be gathering together again. Uh, We're moving closer and closer to that. We're actually making preparations to begin meeting on the back grass lot in sort of a picnic kind of fashion, spread out, socially distanced. Um, So keep watching for that, keep listening for that, but until that comes, I encourage you, gather with your friends, open up your backyard, move a computer out there, your TV even out there, uh, and uh, enjoy the fellowship of one another at least six feet away from one another, Uh, and no handshaking, um, and certainly no holy hugs. Uh, Anyway, that being said, let's jump into our passage today. As I mentioned, we're in Mark chapter 14. And we are uh, picking up today in verse 24 of Mark chapter 14. Let me remind you, last week when we were together, Jesus and his disciples celebrated what all Jews, all good Jews, uh, wanted to do at least one time in their lives, and that was to be able to celebrate the Passover meal together in the city of Jerusalem. And here Jesus and his disciples are doing just that. They gather in this home Uh, that had been prepared for them. It's large enough so that at least uh, the 12 apostles and Jesus um, could be there, and perhaps a few others are there as well, and they gather there. And Jesus takes that very familiar ritual meal that you pretty much do the same thing every time, every year that you're having that meal, and he, he introduces some slight alterations Um, toward the conclusion of that meal. We saw that in verse 22, it says that Jesus took the bread, which would have been a part of the meal, and he took the cup, which would have been a part of the meal, and he told his disciples that each one of those things represented himself. And he introduced to us that uh, practice of communion or the Eucharist or uh, what we oftentimes call the Last uh, Supper. He takes the familiar Passover feast He couples it uh, with this dramatic picture of what he would do in just a few hours that he would give himself on behalf of many. And in doing so, you'll notice where we pick up today in verse 24, he makes the statement, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. Now it's Luke's gospel, which adds the small little word new. And so Jesus is saying, this is my blood of the covenant of the new covenant let's read the whole thing in the context starting in 24 he said to them this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many truly i say to you i will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when i drink it new in the kingdom of god and when they had sung a hymn they went out to the mount of olives speaking of the new covenant now the word covenant is is a word that's not too commonly used In the English language and in the American culture pretty much outside of marriage Uh, we talk about the covenant of marriage pretty much outside of that it's not a word that is commonly used in our language and culture but it is a word that was quite often used in the scripture at the most basic level the word covenant it just simply refers to an arrangement or an agreement we could even use the word contract uh, that is made between two parties And as you look through the Old Testament, you'll see there are a number of different contracts or covenants that are made between two parties, one of those parties almost always being the Lord. And so we have the Adamic covenant that God made with Adam, the Noahic covenant that he made with Noah, the Abrahamic covenant that he made with? say it with me, Abraham, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant, each one of those covenants and the specific agreements, if you will, that God made with his people and that his people responded in agreement to with him. We also have revealed, and we find it revealed to us in the Old Testament, one covenant which was not realized until the New Testament, presented to us in the Old Testament, but not realized until the New And appropriately, that covenant is referred to as the New Covenant. It comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. That's the covenant that Jesus refers to in this Last Supper portion, if you will, of the Passover meal. Here in the final stages of this Passover meal, Jesus tells his disciples that the inauguration of the new covenant essentially has begun, or that it's right about to begin, as he pours out his blood on behalf of many. Now, when you think about a contract, we might seal a contract with another uh, through a handshake. Uh, These days, we we sign a piece of paper. Both parties sign a piece of paper, and our witness Uh, We'll notarize that or whatever it may be. In the Old Testament, they sealed a covenant, not with a handshake, but with the pouring out of blood, the blood of a sacrifice. And in this case, Jesus is saying he himself will become that sacrifice. It is his blood that will be poured out to seal this contract, this covenant. Let me read to you. This is from Exodus chapter 24. And Exodus chapter 24 is the ratification, if you will, of the Old Testament covenant, the sealing uh, of that covenant. And notice what it says here. This, The Old Testament covenant, uh, also referred to as the Mosaic covenant, it says this. This is Exodus 24, verse 3. It says, Now Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice. And they said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars, according to each of the tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the people of Israel, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took, notice, half of the blood, and he put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw on the people and he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And so two things that you see in the Exodus passage here, uh, the first one is pretty obvious. It's the presence of this blood that sealed the covenant. The second thing that we see about that Old Covenant, that Mosaic Covenant, is that it was dependent upon Israel keeping the law. And as you make your way through the Old Testament, and particularly as you make your way into the book of Deuteronomy, what you see is that the relationship that God had with his people was entirely dependent on the law and their obedience to the law. And so in Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, we actually see Essentially, if you do these things, God says, I'll bless you. And if you don't do these things, or instead you do these other things, then I will bring a curse upon you. And since no man can keep the law, the people of Israel were ever in a state of separation from God, which was the whole reason for the continual sacrificial system where they had to keep bringing an offering, keep bringing an offering so that they could cover their sin or atone for their sin. Here, however, as Jesus introduces what Jeremiah called the new covenant, he, in, he says that he's introducing and inaugurating a covenant that will institute a new kind of relationship between God and man. One, not based on law, and not based on law-keeping, but rather on love. His great love for his people, who were no longer simply under the law of God, but now would find themselves within the love of God. And so whereas the Old Testament was based on, if you do these things, I'll bless you, and if you do these things, I will curse you, this new covenant is now, instead, it's based on an inner transformation of a person. This is what Jeremiah 31, 34 says, uh, about halfway through, he says, for I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant is based on an inner transformation of a person that cleanses that person from their sin. We read in verse 33 of Jeremiah 31 that it's a transformation that puts God's word and God's will into the hearts of those that are his children. And so it reads, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. And then finally, unlike the covenant of old, which was based on obedience and works, this new covenant is all about a new and an intimate relationship With God In Jeremiah 31, 33, he says, And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Jesus says that this pouring out of his blood, as represented by him pouring out the wine into that pitcher, that this pouring out of his blood that would happen at Calvary would inaugurate this new covenant for the people of God. He goes on at that meal, and he adds, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again, of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. We pick up two things here about the Lord. Number one, Jesus knew that he was going to die. And secondly, Jesus knew that his kingdom would come. Jesus was certain of the cross, but he was just as certain of the glory, which would be his following the cross. And so he takes this familiar Passover feast, which looked backward all the way to the, the uh, escaping or the exodus from Egypt, and with slight alterations, he institutes the Last Supper as a feast for believers that not only looks backwards to the cross, but also looks forward to the time when we will be in heaven. He describes here what uh, the book of Revelation refers to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of the Lord. And so while here on earth, all hell is literally breaking loose as the Antichrist sort of has his way upon the earth during that period of tribulation, God's children, his saints, his raptured saints, will be in heaven celebrating Revelation 19.9, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus says, I will not drink this cup again until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. That's the event that he is referring to. And so with that Passover feast now completed, Jesus and his disciples, they, they sing a final hymn, and they depart, and they make their way to the Mount of Olives. It was customary to sing a hymn at the closing of the Passover meal. The Jews did it. They sang Psalms 113 through 118, either all of the psalms or portions of those particular psalms. So it's almost certain that what Jesus and his disciples sang here is one of those psalms. And I have to imagine they kind of went in order from 113 to 118, which gives us an indication of some of the final words Of the songs that Jesus and the disciples were singing Psalm 118 we've looked at this at other places in our study of Mark Psalm 118 verse 22 it speaks of the stone that the builders rejected having become the cornerstone verse 22 it speaks of God's marvelous work and that his people should rejoice and be glad in that work verse 23 and verse 24 they would have sung these words, this is verse 25 of Psalm 118, they would have sung, Save us, we pray, O Lord. And I can't help but wonder, as they're all singing this together, if Jesus sort of stopped there and the disciples sang that portion, because indeed it would be Jesus himself who would save his people. A little bit later in that same passage, Psalm 118, verse 26, they would sing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they would sing, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar, pointing to Jesus Christ, the stone that the builders rejected had become the chief cornerstone. How timely all of these words would have been considering the events that would transpire in just a mere matter of hours in the life of the Lord. Now, That's pretty cool to consider the types of words they would have been singing in light of what Jesus was about to do. What I think is also pretty remarkable to consider is just the very fact that Jesus could be singing a hymn, a hymn of praise at this time, considering all that was before him. Where Jesus would not only be physically uh, torn and beaten and brutalized, but where he would undergo and experience the spiritual separation from his father, which he had never experienced before since he was sinless. I wonder, would you be able to sing a song in such circumstances? I can't imagine you would. I, I can't imagine that would be the first thing that I would be thinking about doing. And yet here is Jesus, here are his disciples, and they're doing just that. They're singing this, these closing hymns about the the coming of God's festal sacrifice, God's Messiah, before they make their way out of Jerusalem, down through the Kindred Valley, and begin to make their way up the slopes of the Mount of Olives, which is what we read in verse 26, they went out to the Mount of Olives. As we continue, it says, at some point, either while they're walking to the Mount of Olives, or when they get there, they stop, they sit for a moment, whatever it may be, but Jesus's tone once more changes. He, I imagine they're chit-chatting, they're talking, whatever it may be, but Jesus, he stops things, he gets all of their attention once more, and notice these words that he says, let's take a quick sip. He says to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus quotes here from Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, almost word for word what Jesus said. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And quoting Zechariah 13.7, Jesus predicts the coming defection of his closest disciples, that every one of them was going to leave him. Every one of them was going to abandon him in this particular moment, if you will, of need. Now we have to ask ourselves, why is Jesus telling them this? What's his purpose in pointing out to each of them that they're going to abandon him during this hour of great need? And we might be tempted to conclude that it's sort of a preemptive rebuke. I know what you're all going to do to me, that it's this preemptive rebuke of what he knows they are about to do. But as you keep reading through the passage, there's no, and all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of them, there's no indication that that was Jesus' intent. And so we have to draw the conclusion that Jesus doesn't bring this issue up to condemn his disciples, but rather instead to show them that despite all appearances to the contrary, he really does remain in command of the entire situation because the scriptures long before predicted that these very things would be. Also interesting, if you keep reading through the prophecy of Zechariah in the 13th chapter, it goes on to say that despite the fact that his disciples would abandon them, him, that Jesus would not abandon them. And so Zechariah chapter 13, it concludes with these verses. It's just two verses later, 13, 9. It says, and they will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. And so Jesus, I would suggest to you what Jesus is doing here is he's preparing them for their coming rejection of him. That's a strange thing. It's a strange thing that he's preparing these men for their abandonment However, if you stop and you remember the manner and the practice of the Lord in dealing with his disciples and fallen man and woman uh, as well, it's actually not strange at all that Jesus would do this. Jesus tells them so that when the inevitable does take place, they will remember that in addition to foretelling their failure, he also foretold their future gathering together again with him. Jesus' words were ultimately meant to be words of encouragement. And notice also what the Lord does. Once more, as Jesus brings up the topic of his passion, of his crucifixion, his arrest, his betrayal, his death on the cross, he follows that up with mention of his subsequent resurrection as well. And so in verse 28, he says, look, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. It's G. Campbell Morgan that points out that there is not one single occasion in the Gospels when our Lord made a reference to his coming cross, but that he did not link it with a reference to his coming resurrection. And once more, Jesus follows up a statement about the coming passion with the promise of his victorious resurrection. And he does so this time by informing them that after he is raised up, he'll go before them and he'll meet them in Galilee. You recall that when uh, the folks came to the tomb early on the Sunday morning, they said, Who are you looking for? He's not here. He's gone before you to Galilee, just as he said, you recall. And so we see here, that's what Jesus said to them. He would then go before them to meet them in Galilee. It's a remarkable statement that the Lord is making because it shows that already Jesus is looking beyond the cross and as the writer of the book of Hebrews described it, that he has his eyes fixed on the joy that is set before him. And so here Jesus illuminates all the darkness of the coming cross with the radiant light of his resurrection. It's a beautiful statement uh, that is taking place here. Now, before Jesus could even get to Zechariah 13.9, if that was his intention, Peter interjects, which is certainly not a new thing. He's done that many times in the Gospels. And he says to the Lord, he says, even though they all fall away, I will not. Now, the they all are the rest of the disciples. You know, and so even though they... Uh, to my left and to my right, fall away. I I can't imagine they were all too pleased uh, to be thrown under the bus by Peter in this particular way. But you'll notice it goes on a little later, and it says that they chime in too. They begin to vigorously defend themselves as well. That, 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 Lord, that's an absurd idea. We would never uh, abandon you in this particular time. But Jesus says to Peter, he says to all of them really, but specifically he says to Peter, he goes on and he says, not only are you going to abandon me, he says, Peter, truly I tell you this very night, you will deny me three times. Verse 30 of chapter 14, despite Peter's bold proclamation that he would never deny the Lord, many of us know it's just a matter of hours that he, in just a matter of hours, he would end up denying the Lord on multiple occasions. Now let's look at Peter for a second. Is Peter lying here when he declared his steadfastness to the Lord? I don't think so. We'll see a little bit later when the soldiers come. Peter is, grabs a sword and is going to fight them. I think he was fully convinced he was going to stay with the Lord here. And so it's not that he was lying. It's not that he's trying to trick other people here, or whatever it may be. Peter was simply guilty of what all of us are almost certainly guilty, and that is an overconfidence in our own ability to stand. And so Jesus solemnly warns Peter of the danger that lies ahead. He provides Peter, if you will, with an opportunity to take heed, to consider his own weakness, and to be on guard against that weakness. And when Jesus said earlier, you will all fall away because of me, the word that he used there, it's a Greek word, it's scandalizo. It, means, it refers to the bait that would be found in a trap. And so Jesus is essentially saying, look, the trap has been baited, and every one of you are going to take the bait and be ensnared in the trap. Jesus provides Peter an opportunity to be especially on his guard. Last week we discussed the fact that as they sat at the communion meal, each of the disciples sitting there, that they had, a, they had a healthy distrust of themselves. You recall each of them said, is it I, Lord? Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And they, each one of them began to ask that question, is it I, is it I? They had a healthy distrust of themselves, knowing that every one of them, each one of them knew that each individual one of them was fully capable of doing this thing. And so they asked the Lord, here now, We see just the opposite, not only with Peter, but with all of the disciples. And rather than receiving Jesus' warning and taking extra precautions, lest they be ensnared in that trap that we described there, Peter demonstrates that he's now way too sure of himself. Peter seems to have forgotten what he seemed to know just an hour or so earlier, that the traps of life can trip up even the best of men and women. Peter has forgotten that even the best of men and women can, if they're not careful, step on a slippery place and go crashing down onto the ground. And so I don't look at this and I don't criticize Peter at all. And I don't do so because I I have been where Peter has been. I too have found myself in the place of being overly confident in my own strength and my own ability to walk out my Christian walk and Like Peter, I have failed to heed the warnings that God has brought my way. And as a result, came crashing down in a pretty uh, hard and painful fall. Jesus is providing Peter with the opportunity he would need to be extra vigilant on this particular evening. And sadly, it's an opportunity that Peter did not take. Instead, we read in verse 31, Peter responds, it says, He said emphatically, some Bible versions say, he said vehemently that Jesus was wrong and that he himself would never deny the Lord. You read that there in verse 31. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Again, notice that all the disciples said the same. And so I'll remind you of that which I pointed out last week about the danger of being overly confident in our ability to walk, and even stand in our relationship with Christ. Paul the Apostle, he says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Because the moment we begin to think that such and such a sin will never trip us up is the moment that we have become vulnerable to such and such a sin. And it's when we think we are beyond the reach of certain sins that we've readied ourselves to become susceptible to a fall. We must continually be vigilant to be on our guard. The disciples didn't do that this evening. Continuing on, we read, and they went to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. 34, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came again unto them and found them sleeping. And he said to Simon, to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Now a moment ago we read that they made their way from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. At almost, kind of almost at the base of the Mount of Olives, you would have found, and you can go there, we've gone there many times together, uh, you can, it's still there, at the base of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane, that, which is mentioned in verse 32 there. And shortly we'll discover that this was a place that Jesus often went to pray. Whenever he was down in Jerusalem, visiting Jerusalem from his home up in the Galilee, he would find a reason and he'd make his way to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane and he would pray. And it's the reason why Judas would know where to go to find the Lord. John 18 says, Now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place, Gethsemane, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now the Garden of Gethsemane, being as it is on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, it's surrounded by olive trees, ancient olive trees. That word Gethsemane, it means olive press or oil press, the oil that comes from the olives. And it served as the place where olives from the Mount of Olives were crushed for their oil. It would also serve as the place where the Lord Jesus himself would be crushed on behalf of many. Because there in prayer, Jesus would cry a prayer from his heart and would say essentially, look, if it is possible that this hour might pass, that that would indeed be the way that things proceeded. Verse 36, he says uh, something to that effect. And even in that desperation, so desperate that we read in another place that in that anxiety, anxiety he began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood Even in that place of desperation, we learn here in Mark's Gospel that Jesus surrendered his will to the will of his Father, saying, yet not what I will, but what you will. Leaving the other disciples uh, at the entrance to the garden, we we read there, he takes three of them with him, Peter, James, and John, three of his closest disciples, and they make their way a little bit deeper into the garden. And you'll notice as you continue to read on, on your own or if you skim ahead right now, you'll notice that Jesus doesn't ask them to pray with him. He simply brings them along to be with him. Interesting that in the most intense time of Jesus's entire life, it seems that he is simply craving the nearness of a few other human beings. Again, not to necessarily talk with him or even to pray with him, but simply to be with him. I'm reminded of the book of Job, and that the most right thing that Job's friends did was came and they sat with him. They were with him. And taking these three, Peter, James, and John, a little deeper in the garden, it says that Jesus began to experience sort of this overwhelming burden that came upon his soul. Mark says that he became greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus' usual usual calm and, and peaceful demeanor gave way to the great distress and trouble, so much so that at least one of these three disciples took notice of it and conveyed that to Mark later on so he could convey it to us. Now, it was not so much the horror of the physical torture that Jesus would soon undergo, but rather it was the spiritual alienation that he was about to experience from his father for the first time in all of eternity. Jesus was about to become sin on behalf of all mankind. And the wrath and the judgment of God was about to be poured out on him. This is what the apostle Paul teaches us when he would write, for our sake, God the father made Jesus the son to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become The righteousness of God. You recall when Jesus cried from the cross a little bit later on in our story but most of us are familiar with it. When Jesus cried from the cross he didn't cry oh father father the physical pain is so bad. That's not what he cried. What he cried was my God my God why have you forsaken me? Jesus was overwhelmed here in the garden by the knowledge that the world that he would soon become a sin offering on our behalf. Now, you and I, we are accustomed to sinning. We're accustomed to the separation that sin brings. But Jesus had never experienced any such alienation. It's impossible for any of us to fully conceive what it meant for him, the sinless one, to be made sin on our behalf. Here is how Henry Ironside, or Harry, as some people like to call him, how he explains this great distress and trouble. Ironside, he said this, his holy soul shrank from the awfulness of being made sin upon the tree. It was not death, but the divine anger against sin, the imputation to him of all of our iniquities. That is what filled his soul with horror. Believe it or not, there are actually some that criticize Jesus's prayer here. And they say that it represented a lack of faith on his part, there are actually some that suggest that martyrs faith faced death with greater courage than the Lord did. The reality is, Jesus's prayer reveals the perfect communion that he shared with his Father, because it reveals the way in which he could bear his heart, his entire heart and his entire soul unto the Father, letting him know, if you will what was truly going on in the deepest places and still bring that prayer to the conclusion by saying, yet not my will, but thy will be done. And I'll tell you this, God would rather hear that prayer prayed than the prayer that seems to portray that all is well and at peace when in reality a person is hard-hearted and set on rebellion. Jesus says, not thy will, my will, but thy will be done. He falls to the ground as we read in verse 35. Now, you'll be reminded that the normal posture of prayer for the Jewish man was to stand, to lift the head, to raise the hands, and yet Jesus, it says, he falls to the ground, which is an indication that he is he's pouring out his soul unto the Lord here, and he petitions the Lord. He says, if it were possible that this hour might pass for him, if there was any other way, by which sinners could be saved, and by his death, his burial, and his resurrection, Jesus was asking the Father that he would reveal that way. And the fact that Jesus went to the cross and that he went through the cross, that's irrefutable evidence to each one of us that there was and there continues to be no other way upon which man and woman can be saved. If there was another way, then his death would not be necessary. And the father would be guilty of having ignored his son's petition. And so this prayer of Jesus and the father's subsequent response, it eliminates any other way of salvation. Jesus says, Father, all things are possible for you. Of course, the creator and the sustainer of life could have physically put a stop to these things but he could not do so and continue on with the plan to save sinners. Again, the fact that no answer comes from heaven indicates that there was no other way given among men whereby we must be saved, which are the words of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4. And Jesus having this reality ministered into the depths of his heart, Jesus says, yet not what I will, but you will. Amazingly, there are some that criticize Jesus for that. They say that this prayer in which he surrenders himself to the will of his Father, that this too recognizes a lack of faith. Why don't we just stop here and can we all just agree for a moment that Jesus' prayers are the right prayers and stop critiquing his particular prayers? Because again, there are some that say that such a prayer demonstrates a lack of faith and that such a prayer, if it's prayed as a lack of faith, will never be answered in the affirmative. First of all, those that teach such things are wrong. Secondly, those that teach such such things, they miss the fact that to pray not what I will, but what you will, is a prayer that demonstrates a remarkable amount of faith. The greatest prayer of faith we can make is to say, Lord, here's what I'd like to see happen, but it's your will that has to be done, because you know more and you understand things that I can't even understand. And so, Father, not my will, but your will be done. That's a person that recognizes that God is their loving father, and that because he is good, he will always work things out for good. Jesus says, Not thy will, my will, but thy will be done. Gethsemane was the place of decision for the Lord. In in our trips to Israel, Gethsemane for me. Um, particularly if it's later in the day, it's getting a little quiet. quiet. Gethsemane is located right next to a street um, now, so it's kind of loud. It's, it's, probably, it's certainly not like what it would have been when Jesus was there. Um, so if it gets a little bit later in the day and the cars are starting to die down or whatever, Gethsemane might be one of the, if you will, I'll use the word, the holiest places that I come to when I go to the land of Israel. Uh, it's just because such... Some of the trees, they say, that were around then are still around now. That alone should blow your mind. Um, But secondly, just to consider what went down in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane was the place of decision for the Lord. Now, that's not to say that the Lord hadn't decided beforehand that he would go to the cross. But now he came, if you will, to the point of no return that Jesus would drink the cup of God's wrath at Calvary, but that he decides once and for all that he's going to do so here at Gethsemane. And as somebody has said in another place, the struggle of the cross was won at the Garden of Gethsemane. And so there, Jesus, if you will, doing battle uh, with his will, relinquishes that will unto the Lord And he purposes himself to the task that is ahead of him. And as our verse goes on to say, he rises from that place and he makes his way back to Peter, James, and John, uh, which is where we're going to pick up the next time we are together, where he finds them asleep. And and so read ahead uh, when we're together. But let me just make this final point. And it's a point which kind of looks a little bit ahead to where we'll be in the next two, three weeks or so where Jesus Christ is being sacrificed on a cross on behalf of you and and myself and others. But it's also a point that goes all the way back to where we started today by considering the things that are going on in the world that is around us. Jesus Christ went to the cross because there was no other way whereby men and women could be saved. Every one of us are sinners whether we're doing these horrible things that you're now seeing on TV, or it's just the attitude of our heart that thinks we are better than somebody else and the pride that that is associated with. Every one of us are sinners. Some of us are bigger sinners than others, but every one of us are sinners. And that sin separates us from a holy God. If you learn one thing from our study today, please learn this. Jesus said, if it is at all possible that this could be accomplished any other way, let this cup pass from me. And the fact that God the Father had Jesus the Son, God the Son, go to the cross, that is your answer, that there is no other way. Again, to quote the Apostle Peter, there is given among men no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. And if you have never come to the place of trusting Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin, then I want to encourage you to do so. Look deep into your heart and you will see the sin that separates you from a holy God. Don't compare yourself with others. Compare yourself to the holy and righteous and perfect Lord of heaven. And you'll see that you fall miserably short. We all do. I'm not blaming you or pointing you out in particular. Every one of us falls short of the glory of God and are worthy of judgment. But Jesus Christ came into this world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And I want to encourage you, call out to the Lord, ask him to forgive you of your sin, receive the gift of his sacrifice, his son, Jesus Christ. Drink, if you will, of the blood of the new covenant that he would wash over in you and that God would implant his word in your heart and his will in your heart that you might be cleansed of your sin that separates you from him. And if you'd like to talk more about that, reach out to us here. If you're watching on Facebook or even online, you can put something in the comments and we'll connect with you. Or you can always just send us an email or call us here at the church office because we wanna help you get started in what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so with that, let me close out our time in prayer. We're gonna come back, our worship team's gonna come back. They're gonna sing another song or two that you can sing along with. Uh, And then I'll close this out one further time with a final scripture. So let's pray together. Father, we do pray for that person that is watching. And Lord, we know that so many have been watching that uh, perhaps typically didn't attend church prior to this whole pandemic. And we know that there are many that uh, may not even know you yet that are tuning in and considering these things. And we pray for them right now. Lord, that your saving work would take place within their heart. Lord, that you would bring them to the end of themselves. Lord, that they would have this overwhelming sense of their need to be washed and cleansed and their inability through any good works of their own or any other religious or ritual practices that they might do that they're unable to deal with that sin problem. And instead, Lord, this morning that you would have them look to heaven, Look up, if you will, and see the cross of Calvary where their sin had been paid for and the price was paid. And Lord, you would enter into their life in a new way, pouring out your blood upon them, washing them whiter than snow, as the scripture says. And so, Father, bless your word as it goes forth. And Lord, for each one of us that are followers of Christ, disciples of the Lord Jesus, Father, we want to heed the warning that you gave to Peter and to the other disciples. Not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, not to think more confidently of our abilities to walk with you, and that we would never deny you or turn from you or sin against you. Lord, we are a people that are in need. Lord, having begun in the spirit, are we now going to be made perfect in the flesh? And yet, so often that's what we do—we depend on the flesh. Lord, once anew and afresh, we look to you for your grace. Enable us to walk in your ways, to depend on you each step of the way, that you might be honored and glorified in the lives that we live. And we pray that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close out our time in a